You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you for coming to the ULI Strong Towns recording live. We have two of our ULI members that are going to be interviewed today. Shane Hampton, come on up. I believe Jane Jenkins is out there as well, and she'll be seated next to Shane. Thank you for coming and joining us for this event. Excellent. Thank you for having me. It's fantastic. Uh, welcome, everybody. If you ever listen to Strong Towns podcast, I always start out by saying hi. I'm Chuck Marone. I'm the president of Strong Towns. Uh, for those of you that don't know Strong Towns, we're a nonprofit organization uh, focused on the financial impacts of our development pattern. Our mission is to support a model of growth that allows our cities, towns, and neighborhoods to become financially strong and resilient. I came from Minnesota today, where we are having a blizzard. And uh, yeah, I was freaked out about making it to the airport because. Uh, I got a two and a half hour ride normally, and um, I dropped the kids off from school and I had to record actually a podcast right away this morning for our No New Roads week we're having. And uh, got in my car at nine, knowing I had just like three and a half hours to get to the airport. And it took, I, I barely made it, but I'm here. We're ready to go. Yes. We've never recorded a podcast. Well, we've recorded some podcasts in front of a lot, but not like this, you know, size and, and uh, all of you. Um, I have two people with me today on the podcast. One I know fairly well. The other one I just met, and she seems like a very sweet person. Let me introduce first Shane. <laughs> Shane is not the sweet person. <laughs> for those of you listening at home. No, Shane's a swell guy. Uh, Shane Hampton, you're, you're actually now, you weren't this last time I was here, but now you are the interim director of the University of Oklahoma Institute for Quality Communities. Uh, it says here you assist Oklahoma communities in improving the built environment. Talk a little bit about what you guys do at the Institute for Quality Communities. Because you brought me here last year. We did some fun stuff. Yeah, so one of the big things we do is the uh, uh, every other year the placemaking conference, which we had you come down to Oklahoma for. Who was anyone in the audience? Was that oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we are sort of a... You know, our mission is kind of to bring the message of uh, how the built environment affects the quality of life for Oklahomans and also to help out uh, people who are trying to do cool things in their towns. Now, when I was here, we didn't just have the conference, which was cool, but you drug me all over <laughs> the state to meet. Talk a little bit about what the university does for communities around the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, what we do is uh, kind of find out what a town needs and then within the College of Architecture at OU find students who are sort of matched uh, with their skill sets to what that need is, yeah. put together a team and go out and uh, see if we can address their issue. Where are you from? I'm from Edmond. Edmond? Yeah. Deer Creek. Oh, you, so you are native Oklahoman. That's right. You yeah. grew up here. Where'd yeah. you go to college? At OU. At OU, yeah. and now you're back. I've been at OU ever since. Nice. Yeah. Can't leave. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I... I have to ask, just as a, as a little aside, because we're here. Um, when I was there, the, at, at one point you had this, this very beautiful, wonderful, very talented woman come in. And she, she sang 
what I think is like the school song or something like that. And I was, you know, this is Oklahoma. You guys are rugged people, right? I was expecting some, you know, barbarous, rugged type of song. And it was quite the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, okay. Explain this to me. Could, I mean, I'm, you're a planner. You're not a, you know, school song. But what, what's going on with the school song? You know, I think the, the OU chant is more of the... Is that what, it, is that what I'm yeah, looking for? Yeah, it's, it's more of the formal song, and then we save the, the fight songs for... Oh, okay. For the stadium, because it was yeah. it was tender and touching, but it wasn't what wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, no. So okay, before we're done tonight, then all of you will have to do the fight song or like some chant for me, so I'm in the in the right mood. All right, the wonderful uh, Jane Jenkins. We were able to chat a little bit ahead of time, so I, I know that when it says right here how respected you are by your peers, I know that's actually true. You're. Uh, <laughs> selected as the president and CEO of Downtown OKC Inc., a nonprofit organization in January of 2009. So you've been in this job for quite a while. It's an organization that serves to promote, market, and develop downtown Oklahoma City. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you, Chuck. And you may be the first person ever to describe me as sweet. Sweet, yeah. Well, I, you know, you, you're from South Carolina. That I am. And everyone yes. from South Carolina has a little bit of sweetness in them, right? Only in their tea. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your journey from South Carolina to Boulder to, to here? Because I, I found that to be interesting, um, especially the, the, the switch from Boulder, which is kind of looked at as like the chic, popular, hip kind of place, to Oklahoma City. What, what drew you here? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Oklahoma. I went to college here and taught school in Oklahoma. I started my career in downtown Main Street through the Oklahoma Main Street program um, and then had an opportunity to move to Texas and ultimately Colorado. So I was gone from Oklahoma for 21 years when I had the opportunity to come back and manage downtown OKC. Um, you know, I had a lot of people look at me with raised eyebrows when I told them I was going to move from Boulder, Colorado to Oklahoma City. Yeah. Um, and it's not just the political differences, but, you know, as I said, this is an awesome opportunity to be part of watching a city's transformation and being part of that transformation. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to be around to see all of what I get to work on now because we're planning so many long-term projects, um, but a lot of the younger people that I work with, like Shane, mm -hmm. <laughs> will be around to see the final results, and I just think that that is the coolest thing in the world, is the opportunity we have right now in Oklahoma City to shape a city for the next 50 years is unlike any other downtown job in the country. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I... I will admit, now, I, I'm, I don't want to offend everybody here. I really like it here. I do. But I went home, and I, the last time I was here, and I was telling my wife how I liked certain things about Oklahoma. And she, the look on her face was like, yeah, no, you, you, I, I'm, I'm not buying what you're saying. Well, you should um, have seen my husband's face when I told him I was going to apply for a job. In okay, okay. So here's, here's the thing. We have listeners from all over the world listening to this podcast right now. And when you think about great cities, 
you know, people in the United States often think New York or Boston, or they think San Francisco, Vancouver, Chicago, you know, maybe a, a, an Austin. What is it about Oklahoma City? I mean, this is a pretty cool place. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Tell me, t t tell the listeners why Oklahoma City should be considered one of the one of the up and coming places in the country. Because they welcome outside involvement, and I don't mean outside. I mean it, it's just if you are a young professional and you come to a place like Oklahoma City and you have ideas about what your community should be, what your community should look like, both now and in the future, there are opportunities and there are platforms for you to um, talk about those things, to even implement those ideas. I'm not sure that's the case in some of those other established urban areas. So we are an emerging urban city where people have the opportunity to be a part of what is going to be the change in Oklahoma do you know how Oklahoma City started, Chef? No, I don't. Tell me. So back in 1889, uh, we had an event called the Land Run. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. Yep, yeah, I'm with you. So basically, this was a totally unpopulated area, but in 1889, April 22nd. That, that was where, like, in the they show in the movies where they lined up and then they shot the gun yeah. off and they ran. Yeah, like, I think there's, like, a Brad Pitt yeah. movie or something. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Far Brad away. Pitt. I'm so, sure. so <laughs> actually Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Okay, whatever. Hey, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, you know, ten thousand people from all over the country moved into this this place all at the same time. I think what Jane's saying. I mean, I think that spirit is still around today. You can come here and kind of make the community that you want, sort of from scratch. Yeah. So it's exciting. Your mayor, who's going to be here? Yeah, I was I was going to interview the mayor. Today, I'm, I'm more than happy to interview the two of you. I, I won't say that that is an upgrade, but we can, you know, I'm not much for politics. But let me, let me ask you this, because it, your mayor is a, is a fascinating guy, and he is well-respected in, in, you know, around the country. One of the things that I find unique about your mayor is that he has an emphasis on quality of life. And, you know, he's been elected four times, the first mayor in Oklahoma City history to be elected to four terms. Talk a little bit about the quality of life agenda and what that has meant to your job and, and, and what you see going on in this community. Well, I'll kind of tell a personal story here. When I, I, I laughed when I said you should have seen my husband's face when I told him that I wanted to apply for a job in Oklahoma City. And his response was, well, I can visit you. Um, <laughs> Because my husband is a native Oklahoman, grew up in Ponca City and went to OU and left um, Oklahoma to go to work for Hewlett Packard in Colorado in 1979 after getting his master's degree. So his vision of what downtown Oklahoma City and what Oklahoma City in general was was shaped by what downtown Oklahoma City looked like in 1979. And I, I know a lot of you in the audience weren't around to see that, but trust me, people my age remember what that was, and it wasn't wasn't cool. So I brought him with me when I came to interview for the job, and fortunately the weather cooperated, and we had a beautiful day, and he took canal boat rides and went down while I was working, and, you know, went and he's a big photographer, took pictures of stuff, and at the end of the day said, hey, you know, we might be able to do this. And I went, See, it's different now. And what year was this? 
That would have been in 2008. Okay. And so it's, um, but going back to the, the vision of the mayors is, you know, Mayor Mick Cornett is an awesome individual that we all respect and follow and inspires every one of us every day to make our city a better place. But he is just part of a legacy of mayors and leadership in Oklahoma City since the 1990s that said, we have to improve the quality of life for our citizens. And, you know, hence the MAPS program was born. We have to do these things, not just for economic development, but for the people that live here. And so he is following the legacy of the mayors before him since the 1990s about focusing on quality of life and making this a place where people want to be and move and live and work and do whatever they do in the, in the place that they live. Yeah. yeah, I think this idea of quality of life has really been tied to the built environment all along as well since the 90s. What, can, what physical improvements can we make in the city and uh, what kind of sort of neighborhood placemaking, which is what James organizations heavily involved in downtown, can we do to uh, create economic development that makes people want to stick around? And so it's been a place-based quality of life. I want to ask, uh, talk a little bit about the MAPS program. Mm -hmm. um, th this is, and, and I'm, I'm the outsider here looking at this estate, this is the, the big borrowing thing you do every eight years or so uh, to, to make investments in projects. Go ahead. I, no, I, it's not borrowing, it's taxing. It's taxing. Okay. It's a, it, describe Sorry, it. Describe what's going on then. No, that's good. Good. It, yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on the idea there behind the MAPS program? Because you're in your third iteration now. Actually, fourth if you if you count some um, bumps that we extensions or okay. certain taxes. But but yes, I mean it is a sales tax that is voted on by the people and to to build capital projects that will improve the quality of life of the citizens in Oklahoma as well as Oklahoma City. And it has proved successful beyond measure. I think, and we do have communities that come to visit us to find out how we do this. I will tell you that taxing yourself for capital improvements for quality of life is not a very Republican thing to do, but in this very red state, we've done it, and we've shown that it results in economic development, and it results in jobs, and it results in uh Younger, yeah, I'm say younger professionals like Shane continuing to stay in our state instead of fleeing to other other places where they're not going to. I, I, you know, what do you? Yeah, oh, yeah um, I was going to ask you yeah, sort right. of a similar question about this, Chuck. Yeah, like, I'm the interviewer here. So. Yeah, well, I'm going to. I'm going <laughs> to. Sorry, it. wrong. Podcast. You don't get to ask. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think MAPS has been a great program for us, but, you know, what you talk about a lot is um, what Well, makes... I was going to hit you with this next. So, okay, let me let me ask you the question, and then you, you can tell. So, I don't think you get to ask any questions, yeah. Shane. <laughs> both of you, both of you work at, at a fine-grained level. And both of you are in the trenches, right? And when I go through the MAPS projects, you know, I see things like convention centers and, and you know, large kind of top-down projects. And I'm, I'm wondering, are things getting lost in the mix? Is, is this the way 
that we should be going about making investments. Uh, how successful do you find, and you said it was very successful, how successful do you find it to be? I, I look at this neighborhood here, and this doesn't feel like something that would be part of a big MAPS type of investment, yet this neighborhood rocks. Well, because of the MAPS investment, you know, this is going back to the old Main Street adage of if you strengthen the heart, if the blood pumps out to the rest of the district. I can look out to the Plaza District, the SEO, the Capitol Hill, and, and see success and, and such as that because of the investment that's been made in downtown and the success of those districts have given these districts the um, encouragement and the vitality to, to move forward with what, what they are doing. Is there a MAPS project here? No. But has this district benefited from the MAPS project in downtown Oklahoma City? Absolutely. Because it's created a vision for them about what they be can become and, and, and do as a result of, of MAPS being there. It is, um, we do get criticism. MAPS is all about downtown. But I am a longtime Main Street manager since the beginning of the program in the 80s. And we're always taught as, as goes your downtown, so goes the rest of your city. And I think you only have to look to um, Detroit as um, an example of where even if you just had one major investor, one major um, business owner that came in and tried to make a difference there, the transformation, the ongoing transformation of downtown Detroit is contributing to transformation of the districts that are outlying the downtown. Sure. You know. I Part of the Detroit narrative to me, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, part of the Detroit narrative to me that is, is really special about what's going on in downtown now is kind of the fine-grained scale. It's, it's really a Main Street kind of thing. Uh, yes, they're building another big stadium, uh, you know, but when you go there and you walk the street and you talk to people and you exist in that space, it's really the fine-grained stuff that they're doing that, it, in my opinion, is making a big difference. What do you see, Shane, here in terms of maybe some of the trade-offs between a, a large kind of, uh, what, what we at Strong Downs often call like a trickle-down approach of we'll do a big project and have that kind of prosperity blossom out versus a more bottom-up kind of, you know, let's deal with the street, let's take this block-by-block, fine-grained kind of approach. Yeah, I think, well, what gets talked about a lot is the MAPS program. We're talking about development of Oklahoma City, which is the big blockbuster projects like the arena or the convention center. But the public sector has been investing a lot in, you know, Main Street reconstruction, streetscapes like the one out front of this building. And those are small, relatively small investments, a million dollars uh, here and there compared to a $200 million. Three quarters of a billion is the current MAPS program. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Some money. Yeah. Right. But, you know, combined, you know, the public infrastructure investment of like street design with, you know, hard work and people who are really committed to their neighborhood, you know, Plaza Districts has a, a great neighborhood association that takes care of the street and what happens on it and makes sure that it's all contributing towards the same goal downtown. Uh, manages all the investments we've made downtown and, and sort of puts those together with um, initiatives to really make the most of all the public investments. So I think it's that combination of things that works really well for us. How do we go about encouraging small-scale investment? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be meeting with the developers tomorrow. 
uh, giving a talk with, in coordination with the ULI with a group of, of developers. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in kind of this new class of developer that we see popping up in cities all over the place. The, the, the person who uh, has another job but sees the house in foreclosure across the street and, and wants to buy it and fix it up. They're, they're maybe not, uh, you know, going to go out and do a whole tract of, you know, 20 homes in a subdivision. They're going to do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. What, what are we doing here in Oklahoma City to encourage that kind of entrepreneur? Well, there are, there are some incentives in place right now for, for small scale projects. Uh, probably one of the most important ones we'll look at for the is our historic preservation, statewide historic preservation campaign. But it's like in many other places that's threatened right now. Um, but, uh, you know, in larger projects, it's available for SEP only larger projects. What I really believe is, again, is the success of, um, and this is not just the success of the project downtown, the impact of the next project, and the way that the district downtown, because downtown Oklahoma City is made up of multiple districts, not just what you would call a central business district. We have character districts down there, and the way that they have responded to this and branded themselves and responded on a very incremental, smaller level, you know, has now translated into these districts that are outside of, of the downtown boundary. We're in one right now that's been, this is an incredibly, with their own market, an incredibly successful district. What's the name of this district? The Plaza District. The Plaza District. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's very nice. It's, it's one of my favorite districts in Oklahoma City. Yeah, and the neighborhoods around it. Are, and, are really and, the neighbor, and that's just it. You have, it, 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 and there are many cities that have commercial strips, commercial corners, commercial areas that are surrounded by neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods have abandoned those commercial businesses. And what we've seen in Oklahoma City is that the neighbors have come in and embraced those commercial businesses and been a part of that turnaround because they are critical to the process of creating market and supporting. And I've you know that's happened here, it happened in Paseo, it happened on uh, uptown twenty third street, it's happened in happening in Capitol Hill. I mean, I just, and, and, and that's just the beginning. We have so many other urban commercial neighborhoods around here that are going to see more and more revitalization as a result of success of this place in there. But I'm just not showing you. I don't know. Uh, I was going to say, I was going to talk, I think we have like a lot of low-hanging fruit in yeah. the downtown area like these were really big complicated projects to put together but in our downtown we had all these whole blocks of vacant property that were really easy to put a 300 unit apartment complex and a parking garage again you know involved a lot of deal making to make those happen it wasn't i shouldn't say easy but the, the land and the property is there and i think once those are gone and we're already starting to see this the development gets a little bit more challenging how do you do something that's a finer grain maybe public assistance isn't as readily available for like a fourplex as it is for a 300 unit apartment complex yeah yeah that makes sense um i'm going to allow all of you to ask questions in a bit if you would like so as we go along here if there's something that comes to your mind 
you know, write it down or commit it to your base memory, and we'll uh, we'll come back to you. I, I want to talk a little bit about the tax structure here because Oklahoma City. I want I, I want to say the state in general is at the municipal level is dominated by sales tax. Uh, you're not necessarily getting. I don't think you get any property tax at the city level. So. When we look around the country at places that are dominated by the sales tax, it tends to result in crazy things at times. Uh, for example, if you take a kind of cold-blooded look at the finances, a big box store is a really great investment. A residential neighborhood is not. And I pointed out a number of times on the blog, like the ultimate city, if you're going to be sales tax, is one that has zero residences and all businesses and make it work really, really well. What kind of impact is a sales tax environment have on the conversation here and what is considered a good investment and not a good investment? Can I just say that that's where having a business improvement district is so important? Talk about that, yeah. Because business improvement districts are generally, at least not in Oklahoma, nor in Colorado, nor in Texas, where based on sales taxes, they're based on property taxes, and then uh, funding. So you're not um, rising and falling necessarily with the with consumer spending, but more with the values of the properties. And this um, was very evident when I was in Colorado and, and managing Jensen Builder, and we had that many session in the early 2000s for sales. Colorado was also a state, by the way, where municipalities were dependent on But our bid was dependent on property taxes, so we actually at a stronger financial position within our downtown bid and the city bid within its um, downtown, you know, downtown services because we were funded differently. And um, so if you have a state or a municipality with similar bid taxes, this can become very important in helping continuity of services because property taxes can be less volatile than sales taxes. And, um, no, it really does. You know, yeah. It's, it's, uh, so for you, it's it's driven a lot more of the importance of a bid and the structure of a oh, business improvement. Yeah, I, I I I will. You know, bids are critical to the stability of the okay. Shane, how does the sales tax impact the conversation? Do you see? You know, here in Oklahoma City, but also around the state. I think a lot of communities chase. You know, the next big. Walmart or big box development on the edge of town, um, it, and is there's it, is it different? Big like is Oklahoma City a different case than like I mean we were we were in some really struggling small towns you and I yeah. you know last year. Is it different for those two? Not necessarily. I think Oklahoma City competes just as much for okay. like the traditional um, outlying big box retail stores and even offers public incentives for them. I think you know we also have some examples. Uh, within our city that are starting to show how much urban style development can keep the sales tax within the city. Like if you have a new hotel in a district like Bricktown, you have, I think we were in one recently on a UOI tour that had, I think they said 50,000 guests per year coming through their average medium sized hotel. And that's 50,000 people who are spending the night within a short walk of a restaurant where they're going to spend 10 or 15 dollars on a meal so you start adding that up as a huge impact on sales tax even when you stack it up against a lot sure. let me give you a story uh, of a different state 
And then I don't, I, you, you can tell me if this is too close to home and you don't want to talk about it, but that's why we'll use this other state. <laughs> so I'm from Minnesota. Next to us is the state called North Dakota. And when we went through in Minnesota, the 2008 housing bubble burst, and we had this whole kind of shakeout in our economy, uh, what we found during that period of time is that the North Dakota economy was, was not really impacted all that much. They hadn't done a lot of the crazy things we had done in terms of housing. They had an economy that was a little bit more diversified. And at the same time, the shale oil thing was starting to pick up a lot. And it was having a big impact. In fact, a lot of people from my community who had been in the building construction industries uh, up and left and went to North Dakota. They would leave Monday morning and they would come back Friday nights and they were making their living out there for a couple of years. That story has changed now. And, you know, a barrel of oil below thirty dollars uh, has completely, you know, the, the persistence of that has changed uh, that flow of cash. It has changed the economic situation. Even though these are places that are are pretty resilient, how is that story similar or not similar to to what you see here? And what kind of challenges does that create for for you in in making a a strong, diverse, healthy economy? Well, I can, I, I can tell you this, that, you know, I was in Oklahoma in the 80s when we were hit um, by the first oil price crisis and the, the decline of, as a failure of Penn Square Bank and how that um, translated into so many other things. That was when I started my career as a Main Street manager. It was in the 80s. And so if you can get through that, you can, you know... Um, and I do think that we have learned some lessons from that decline in the 80s. Our economy in Oklahoma is much more diverse than it was. Uh, we still are a basically considered oil and gas state. Um, I did think it was interesting when I came back to Oklahoma in 2009, they weren't called oil companies anymore, they're energy But, you know, um, but they were... And, and now we have more biotech, we have more aerospace, we have a much more diversified economy. But it's still evident in this latest economic situation that, that the price of oil is still going to have a lot of impact on, on our economy. And, um, but I think that what makes the difference between now and 1982 is we are at least as a city in Oklahoma City, and change the public speak for the rest of the state, but he's around them more. But I think as a city, we uh, are confident that it will not be that same situation because we have enough of a diversified economy that we're not going to be in the same place we were in 1985. I think there were a lot of towns uh, that remembered that 1980s situation, and there are a lot that will tell you that during this recent good time they were investing in new public infrastructure projects uh, to prepare for what might happen uh, with energy prices in the future. Um, so I think it might be a little bit different, but there are a lot of towns in Oklahoma that look a lot like North Dakota. Like they were really living large the last few years, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I, I do think that a lot of towns have invested so much, again, in quality of life that now, when this happens, it's not just, why would we still want to live there? The job is gone. It's, how can we still find a way to keep living here, even though the job is gone? Here. 
continents there. In, in 2008, where the rest of the country was, you know, hemorrhaging, Oklahoma City didn't do real bad. And you guys were, I mean, I'm not going to say it was, it was fantastic, but the, the Great Recession that impacted and devastated places like California and Florida and Texas, I don't know. I mean, do you feel like things were okay here or you weathered the storm better than most? And, and why was that? Well, I think that we did, and, and again, I think it's because we had diversified our economy, and it was kind of a little split. Oil was still healthy, you know, and that is always going to be a driver. Um, and our first split in that recession economy didn't come around until about 2010, 2011, and we recovered from that. But we still do some drops in price as well as then. It's been so severe. And you have to understand that when that happens, you have people that live in the state that maybe don't have to spend. You know, um, it's not just about jobs, it's about, oh, well, maybe I'm not going to be not going to be It's kind of, you know, stymied the flow of the economy, but I still, I am optimistic that I think that we are better for this. But it's not. Not sugar toast. We have very serious. Sure. I want to play a game. Um, yeah, I am going to give you a, a word or a phrase, and I just want you to react to it in like whatever way it comes to your mind. Okay. I shouldn't have had the second beer. No, Wait. no, this is good. It's all going to help. All right. We don't have enough parking. Shame. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Jane. Management. Management. Talk, elaborate a little bit on that. Well, I thought this word said to No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I want you to... Parking problems are generally parking management problems, and I think that's the same thing in Oklahoma and I, in Oklahoma City anyway. And I really believe that we, we did actually, and I've been doing this for 30 years, for a while, face a national supply parking crisis in Oklahoma City, but I don't want us to overbuild parking because technology is changing enough to where I think we're not going to need the amount of parking in the future. And I think that the, uh, the developers and the decision makers in Oklahoma need to not be building parking for today's demands, but looking at what the demands are going to be in five to ten years, and that is not as much parking as we think. Yeah, I agree with Jane on parking management. It's an so important way to make sure you always have enough parking, but I think uh, a lot of times when we think we have a parking problem, we're actually doing okay. We did a study in this district, uh, which is considered to have a parking problem throughout the community, um, but we found that a lot of the restaurants had like an hour-long wait for a table at their restaurants. So I think if you have an hour-long wait for a seat at a restaurant, you probably have enough parking in your district because yeah, yeah. you have two hours worth of customers parked in your district. So there's some things we need to like realign our expectations. In. Sure. Yeah. Well, in this neighborhood, it's very walkable. I mean, I, I parked a couple blocks away and, and found it a very pleasant walk. And, you know, it was easy to find a parking spot. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Number two, let me try this thing. Uh, traffic congestion. Your reaction to the, 
the notion what of traffic, traffic control. Okay, the, uh, elaborate on that. Go ahead. Oh, we're bringing more wine, oh so <laughs> this will continue to get interesting. Um, it can only get more, yeah. Well, I mean, we do have some traffic congestion, but I don't think it's as much as other major cities, and I think there are statistics that, that prove that. And I am going to have to qualify that by saying that we have been under construction in downtown pretty much since 2010 and the start of Project 180 where we have, we've been doing streetscape. And so traffic congestion is dependent on where that construction is and what streets are closed. But for the most part, uh, I've lived in um, Dallas. I've spent time in Denver. We don't have... You know, I can get through traffic congestion, you know, pretty quickly. I would call it um, rush money, not rush. Now, that being said, a, a lot of that money, that quality of life money, is going to fight congestion, right? And some of that, some of that money uh, is going to uh, to to roadway stuff, right? I would say it's kind of separate. We do have like bond issues that are yep. going towards roadway widenings that I think are probably a little bit unnecessary, yeah. Okay. Like on the edges of town, or where it's not even it's not even you know developed yet out there, and so I'm just waiting for traffic that hasn't occurred yet. Yeah. I'll say I'm guilty of like driving 20 miles every day to work because um, I want to live in Oklahoma City, but I work in in Norman. But um, you know the fact that I can drive 20 miles every day to work says that our traffic condition. Situation. <laughs> our, our population in Oklahoma City is about, and y'all can correct me, I'm looking at the audience, about 650, 640,000, that's about right. And our land area is about 620 miles, is that right? Mm -hmm. So basically every person that lives in Oklahoma City has a square mile. So, you know, we are not a dense municipality. We are in other, in, in certain places, of course, but, um, when you, when you look at it that way, you can see how our traffic um, problems are really small compared to some of the others of other metropolitan, metropolitan areas. We, we can get around pretty well in our city. And, you know, we have traffic jams based on weather, traffic accidents, you know, anything else. But um, our, our commutes are pretty easy, which makes it very, very difficult, as Jane said, for us to make a case for alternate modes of transportation, you know. That was going to be my next word. <laughs> uh, transit. Talk a little bit about, you know, transit in the Oklahoma City context. Well, we I think we talk, we end up talking a lot in Oklahoma City about how we can make transit better, make more people ride transit. I think the bottom line is that we just don't spend enough money on it. I mean... Well, we don't have enough money we don't, choose to, we, don't choose. we don't choose to find a funding source to value transit the way it should be valued is what I would say. But, um, you know, we could... Can we I could, interrupt <laughs> and say, I'm sorry, just to make the argument interesting, but I'd also <laughs> say we have a strong, because of our dependence on oil and gas as an industry here, we have a strong lobby from auto okay. that, that sort of... Well, with the sales tax, that argument of yeah of spending money. Yep, with the sales tax is a certain, you know, auto dealerships become a big deal. A Actually, they don't yeah. pay sales. They don't. You're joking me. Okay, well, forget that. 
Um, no, I wish they did, then I have a really big story to tell. So, <laughs> so talk to me, it, culturally, is transit just a tough sell? I, mean, I, is think, that, is that, I think it's is getting, it, like, a lot of people are starting to rally behind public transportation, I think. Um, is it a generational shift? Or am I putting words in your mouth? Yes. In terms of... In terms of... <laughs> In terms of who is going to use transit, I do think that's true, but I think that the older generation here in the city is starting to realize what the economic potential of better transit service is. So I think they're more and more willing and to And if Shane is including me in the older generation, then <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Well, you've always known it's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. It's a <laughs> Some other people are just learning that. <laughs> but but I, I do think it is a cultural thing, and I'm sorry. I mean, Oklahoma City grew up with the automobile. Uh, one of our downtown districts called Automobile Alley. The first buildings that were built on those properties along Broadway were car dealers, you know. And that is what has survived and it's one of our great historic districts and part of our great downtown uh, retail strips. But they started life as car dealerships. And as I said, you know, the car dealerships in that time would do three things. They would sell you a car, they would service your car, and they would store your car because the homes didn't have places to store the cars and so you could find So it, you know, being that we became, we sort of grew up with the automobile and the automobile was um, a novelty in Oklahoma. It's always been part of our growth history. You know, this is, we are not, um, I, I am from the southeast, you know, where towns are built around this horse and buggy or walking or something. Mm -hmm. Our town grew up around accommodating automobiles. So did Tulsa. So did uh, you know most of the major cities in Oklahoma. Because by the time they were growing, the automobile was in the picture. So we and, and, and as a lot of Western cities do, but um, we have to we have to be able to say that uh, we have to be able to educate people that it's not about automobile bad good. It's about we need to make sure that there are choices for people based on their lifestyle, based on their income, based on their budget. And it's, you know, we have to make sure there's choices that people. I mean, we've seen studies like showing that co the cost of owning and driving a car is like up to $10,000 a year. And if, if a low income family's first $10,000 has to go towards their car, you know, that's a, that's a big challenge economically. So I think people are catching on here to what uh, what economic potential there is in providing that. If, if I want to move my family here, can I be economically integrated into this community with only one car? Or do I do I I've got two kids and my wife and I. Could could we could we make it here comfortably on one car or, or am I required to have two? I, I know a lot of people who have switched to doing a one car household. Um, usually with younger kids or no kids, probably, but I think they realized they were just leaving one car in the driveway if they lived in the central part of Oklahoma City a lot. And I've known two families who have gone without a car entirely. You know Sid Burgess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sid. Yeah. Uh, I knew Sid would come <laughs> yeah. up in this podcast yeah. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> uh, so he, he managed with his three kids. Sid, Sid no is car. not like your case study, though. No, insanity. no, no. Right? I mean, we can't yeah. hold Sid up as like, yeah. look. This is possible because Sid is an extraordinary guy. Right? Well, it, it's not easy, but you know, yeah. you can. I think a one-car household is becoming something that a lot of people are trying to do here. Yeah. Okay. Jane, please. 
Well, what I was just saying, you know, AJ is out there, and he heard this with me when we were at the International Downtown Association in San Francisco. I mean, your car is parked 94% of the time. 94% of the time, your car is parked. Everyone who drove here has a parked car out there, you know, and you're all inside here. And, you know, I think that statistic really hit me, you know, that I drive to work, I park my car, um, and uh, I have a place to park it, and that's, and that's great, and that's convenient for when I have to leave to go somewhere else. But one of the things I learned about being in Boulder, Colorado, where transit was, I had an eco-pass where it did not, I didn't have to pay every time I got on the bus, I just flashed the pass. The bus service was fast and frequent, and then for me it was free, you know, because I worked in downtown Boulder. Um, I became a devotee of public transportation because there was a system that worked for me. You know, now it didn't cause me to get rid of a car, but it caused me to leave my car parked at my house a lot more than let me ask you this. Oklahoma City, uh, bike walk friendly, yes or no? We're working. Depends on okay. where you are. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, Jane said, how, it's a, but, like Jane said, it's a 600 plus square mile city. So if you, if you live in a certain neighborhood, we're there where you can uh, walk or bike for most of the things you want to do every day. But. What's the trajectory along those lines? I mean, if you look back 10 years and you, you take a snapshot and then you look today, how much change am I going to see, and then how much change will I see a decade from now? Well, I've been here seven years. I think we've come a long way in seven years, and I'm, I'm looking at my audience for, you know, I mean, I feel like when I, when I got here, we had absolutely no consideration for biking or seven years. I think it was an idea, but I think we've actually implemented some stuff, so I think we're making progress. Um, I think it's been a long time to uh, get there, but it's a community that's growing. Mm -hmm. You know, as the Do young professional wants to be less Here's the deal in Boulder. Your company doesn't provide parking space for you. You either have to ride bus or ride the bus. It's a very definite um, strategy for the Colorado to underpark the downtown by every single downtown employee with a system wide RTD and to encourage RTD. Now, Oklahoma City could do something like that, but the bottom line is that the service is here right now through our buses probably doesn't accommodate most of the people that need Whereas RTD, the regional transit system, is able to provide a level of service that do um people say it's too hot to walk in? Because I'll tell you, yes. in Minnesota, people say, oh, it's way too cold to walk, and it's 20 below, and you see people, the same people out walking who are walking when it's, you know, 50 and 60 degrees. I think people would walk here in hot and in cold. I think that really what limits walking here is wind. Okay. Wind. Do you have wind can here? I get, can I get an amen? What? Yeah. I, think, I think wind <laughs> is the biggest uh, I, I, weather <laughs> phenomenon. I think that's the biggest attractor to walk. 
I think biking too. I mean, when you when you're biking and you hit a gust of wind. But the interesting thing is, like, the more developed, if you ride through Heritage Hills or Mesta Park, it's like nice neighborhoods where there's trees and stuff. Yeah. You don't get wind blasting you. If you're it's if true. you're in the middle of uh, downtown where there's lots of buildings, you don't get wind. But I used to I used to live in like a tree line neighborhood and bike to downtown, and in the middle there was like this zone of vacant lots. And as soon as you hit that zone of vacant lots, it's like wind. And I'm going to be laying Last here year. and say, I drive a smart car. So <laughs> I feel like I'm doing my part. And the smart car is very I, high profile. And it is yeah, very yeah. dangerous in the wind. I can yeah, I think, right I think the wind would be just but as much of a challenge on the smart car. You guys, car you, you stirred a memory in me. Because you, oh, the university put me up uh, in Lawton, was it? Is that, oh, yeah. I, Lawton, Lawton. Oh, yeah, yeah, they sent me to Lawton. It was an expedition. Um so I was in a, I was in a hotel and we had this long, long week and it was Thursday night of this really long week and Friday we were coming here to Oklahoma City doing our last little thing and then and flying out. And I said, I just need some time to myself and I need to go see a movie. And so there was a movie that started at like 10 a.m. but it was 10 p.m. It was six blocks away. I thought, that's no problem at all. I thought, I thought it was going to blow away. I thought, I thought this was like the Wizard of Oz, like reenacted. And it was just a normal deal. So yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. I, but you know what? I did it. And when I was leaving the theater, someone asked me if I wanted to ride. I said, heck no, I don't want to ride. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Pander to the... I will, and also, I'll take the wind over the several feet of snow and oh, really? oh, I any day. Love so. the snow. <laughs> um, really? I found the snow. I lived in Colorado. Do people go crazy here when you get the little bit of black ice and stuff? Does the oh, place go nuts? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. We just get to stay home. You do? It's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question for me, and then I invite you know anybody out here who's got a question, please let me know. Um, I, I want to, I don't want to, I don't want this podcast to get political, but I want to ask you about uh, the, the national dialogue right now. Th this is a, this is a, a great city. It's an urban place. Uh, and it's a very red state, and you have a Republican mayor, and your dialogue here tends to originate from the right side of, of what Americans define as our political spectrum. What do you see as the kind of urban dialogue that's going on nationally in, in terms of our political debate, and, and what do you think that people around the country could learn from the values that you bring to bear here in Oklahoma. Is that, a, is that too loaded for you? Or? No, I think there's an interesting thing that the mayor sometimes talks about. I think appeals to conservative, uh, more traditional values a little bit, which is that uh, we're, not, we're building the kind of place where your grandkids will still live in the city that you live in. They won't go to some other, other place. So there's a few ideas. I think also linking everything... Uh, every urban decision, urban design decision, some sort of economic value uh, that comes along with it. I think the ideas from strong towns about um, how to how to create value out of public investment. I think these are all really important ideas in a place like this. Jane, you have a final. Um, you can. No, it's fine. Um, you Yeah, 
We've got a question from the audience. Go ahead and give us your name and your question. I'm Allison Bailey. I'm a ULI member here. I actually wanted to respond to your question oh, because ahead. I don't think either one of them answered it in the way that I would have. Um, what I find so refreshing about our city is the lack of discussion about red versus blue, Republican versus Democrat. Because it's, it's, about, it's about working together, it's about problem solving, and I see more of that happening, and I wish that we could see that at our state level in the same way that it happens at a city level. Um, maybe we would get more things done because we do a good job in Oklahoma City of working through issues that we know maybe have a difference of opinion coming together on them. So, that was my response. Do you, do you just you for my... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, thank you. For, for, my, uh, for my benefit, do you have active two parties here in, in Oklahoma City? Not a local government. Not a local government. They're nonpartisan. Okay, fantastic. Because, you know, a lot of times what I see is that one party gets entrenched in a place and then the dialogue shifts and becomes, you know, not open. And I see the dialogue here as, as being very, very open, but the nonpartisan elections is, I'm sure, yeah, plays I a part in that. Our local politics seem so totally detached from what's happening. At the, it's like totally different ball game. We see what's happening at the Capitol, and we're like, what are they talking about there? Anybody else have something you want to ask? Go ahead, please. Come on up. Uh, it doesn't make for very good podcasting to have dinner, so go ahead. Uh, AJ Kirkpatrick. Uh, Chuck, I wanted to just see, you've been around the state quite a bit now. I'm kind of curious what you feel like you saw during that trip in, in terms of the different communities in our state. Um, yeah, great question. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I saw some really good stuff and I saw some really horrible things. Um, and, and, and I, I say that in like a kind, generous way. I, I think the, the hard thing about small towns in particular is that, uh, we can suck the air out of the room in a small town really easily. And when you go in and you do some of the, the big transformative things that in a big city can, can make a huge difference. And then there's a lot of like moving parts in a big city, uh, that can kind of fill in the gap. In a small town, a lot of these things kind of take the air out of the room. Um, Lawton is a great example. Here's some really, yeah. Well, Lawton, uh, Lawton was okay. We we went to Enid, right? Enid, I love. This is a great place. Had a lot of really good stuff going on. Now, was it hurting? Yeah. Did it need like decades of of incremental growth and investment in core places to make it really spectacular? Yeah. But it was on a trajectory to get there. Um, when we went to Lawton. You met, you know, we were able to meet with people who were very smart, 
and cared a lot about the city and had been there generations and, 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 and had a deep passion for the place. But there was a huge disconnect between uh, the vision and then the stuff going on on the ground. And there were a lot of neighborhoods that had just been completely left behind that had great bones and, and, and you know, great buildings and great architecture that were in total disrepair. And you would have, you know, a mile up the road, a brand new uh, development that everybody was proud of. And then you would have a couple blocks in the other direction, uh, you know, some huge, massive tax-subsidized development that, that didn't fit in with the character of the area. And it, it made me kind of sad. Because you see, you know, really good stuff and really good people, but 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 you know, it, it is uh, in that case in particular, it was a really, I think, a deep deep struggle. Um, you have this, you know, oil economy, and it does put you in a certain, uh, you know, short term thinking kind of mode. Not because you're short term thinking kind of people, but because all the economic incentives you have are wired to this thing that is incredibly volatile and incredibly short-term. And, you know, you, you can study economies around the world that are resource-based economies, and they tend to have this bifurcation where they'll have some places that do really, really well and some places that do really, really poor and not a lot in between. And I, I, that's, that's a lot of what I see here. It's a lot of what I see here. Oklahoma City, this place is fantastic. I mean, this is truly... I. I and I'm not saying this because, you know, pandering to the crowd here, but I'll pander a little bit. Um, you know, Sid, uh, for a, a long time ago, raised my consciousness of this place as being pretty cool. I've watched you in there. I've watched your dialogue there. I've watched how this place has grown and developed. And yes, you know, I don't know as I would do things in terms of like the map projects and all that, the way you do them, but I get what you're doing. It's coherent, and there's a lot of really good stuff going on here. Every time I come back, I find something else new that's really great. So, did you guys have something you wanted to ask? Go ahead, step up, step up. Don't be shy, don't be shy. Uh, you know, dead air is the worst kind of podcast. So, go ahead. My name is Joel Tooney. And so, my question kind of is in regards to so I'm not from Oklahoma City, I'm from Arizona. And I grew up born and raised on the Navajo Reservation, um, very familiar with Phoenix, um, went to school there for the, in the institute there, um, lived there for a long time, as I know the city, you know, I'm pretty fun to that, but um, I think what they did really well there was integration with foot traffic, and even more so when I was there, they had recently completed a, a light rail that connected the north to the south of the city um, and into other parts of the metropolitan areas. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and when I got here, I was like really just taken back at how there's no good form of public transportation. And I didn't have, like, I hardly had a vehicle when I got here. And I'm like, well, I, I know. that kind of sucks. That really is, <laughs> it's really horrible. And as, as I more and more noticed, I actually live on the southwest side of Oklahoma City, on Southwest 25th Street. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking around, and there's like very little sidewalks. And I'm walking around, and there's, there was like paths in the dirt where people would normally walk. 
that reached into people's yards, like personal property into their yards, they're just cats. And that was like a suspected, like, oh, that was okay. And it was very strange to me, but it was what was available up until the maps, maybe 15 months ago, which had reached all the major, major intersections like 44th Street and Penn, uh, Southwest 44th Street and Penn Street, up and down, uh, north and south. So my question is, what more, what else is the city planning to do for specifically integration in regards to encouraging foot traffic? Because I personally, I aspired to open a restaurant but when I look at your your statistics for the Southwest Oklahoma City, um, just foot traffic is just not there. Like I I find it I don't think it would be much, um overreaching to say maybe one fourth of my customer base would be foot traffic, which is very small, which which is not helpful at all for an entrepreneur or uh, a business planner. So I'm going to kind of leave it open-ended without asking too much of a specific, but that's pretty Well, how about that? I mean, I, I, I think, too, hearing your, your, your story, it's interesting to me that you're talking about opening a, a business because when we build around the automobile, the subway, the McDonald's, the Schlotzky's Deli, they become very uh, kind of easy things to do, but that's money coming from a different place. That's not the kind of restaurant you're talking about. I mean, you're, you're more the bootstrap variety. How do we, you know, what, what role does walking, biking type of infrastructure have in, in making investments like that a reality, and how important is that to the future here? Yeah, I think um, a lot of businesses have used traffic counts instead of foot traffic counts. Uh, we don't really have any data about foot traffic counts in the city. That's one of the things that we want to work on at ITC is uh, improving data about uh, pedestrian counts. That's kind of crazy. Well. I mean, if you if you're saying we're going to do traffic counts and and locate our businesses where they have high traffic counts, you're, you're basically saying your ante to run a business is going to be a half million dollars, a million dollars. I mean, you're, you're going to have to make huge investments, it kind of leaves a whole portion of, of the entrepreneurs out of the equation. Right. Go ahead, Tom. You got a question? Tom? Uh, yeah, my question, I moved here from Oregon about three and a half years ago. I worked for one of the big energy companies, and I, I work on a skyscraper with a floor of about 40 people, maybe five native Oklahomans, and everybody there, you know, lives here. In large part, you know, the maps made it possible for us to take this job and not 
the Houston job, which was also on offer. But so I will say that. But the other hand, I like everyone else had the overcome like, oh, you're moving to Oklahoma. But we have, it's my sense of coming here, it's really internalized. Like I heard both you people, you guests say something about it was all about keeping the kids here. Well, what about getting the kids from elsewhere? You know, and I see it in hiring decisions at my company. Sometimes it's like, well, they wouldn't want to come here, so we'll hire this person instead. It's it's really self-defeating, self-loathing thing kind of baked into the cake. And I know maybe that's legit because we're getting that from the rest of the country. <laughs> uh, and our state legislature doesn't help the perception of things. But what is it going to take for Oklahoma City to uh, extract that kind of self-loathing, self-defeating brain that we seem to have? I would love to answer that question because I I'm And in, de in defense of you, every place has that to a degree, right? We, we, we all, I mean, this is the, the, the human condition. We are all hard on the ones we love, right? Well, in, in the 70s and the 80s when I lived here, we all hated Texas to be all on the you know, because they seemed to like where they were from and, and, and we were not. Uh, when I came back to Oklahoma in, in 2000 and 2009, all of a sudden there was jewelry in the state of Oklahoma. There, were, there was art in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, um, that was one of the biggest, um, you know, light bulbs to me when I came back after being gone for 20 years. Is the people of Oklahoma all of a sudden had developed this huge pride for this stuff, you know. And you could see it in the modern politicians that were talking about. You could see it in the art of the local artist. I had seen that in Texas when I lived there in the 90s, but I had never seen it in Oklahoma. Like, what? Show our panhandle? Ah! You know. Um, no. And now I have jewelry, I have art, I have things in my home that are in, in the shape of the state of Oklahoma, and I'm very proud of that. I have a necklace that has Oklahoma City on it. I'm very proud of that. I think that, despite what you say, that there is a huge difference in how the local people feel about their safety. Uh, we may be in a little bit of a downturn, but I think that some of the efforts that are uh, being put forth by some of the larger companies to uh, invest in our downtown and turn it into a world-class downtown where people will want to create headquarters, locate headquarters businesses, lifestyle choices, housing and activities, schools for executives. I see that happening so much from the, in the 80s when I was at um, So I, I, I hear you. I think that, but I think that there's a lot that's being done to try to recruit um, to recruit people. Mm -hmm. and, um, I came back and I actually what I did. It would be more and more people that come back. And I do have to quantify that by, you know, this is not the best time in the world for us to talk about employees. But, but I do think it's something that I think we want to look to to end up on. And thank goodness we're not a square shaped state. <laughs> the necklaces wouldn't be. <laughs> Uh, go ahead. Yeah, Colorado necklace wouldn't look nearly yeah. as <laughs> That's boring, yeah. <laughs> Kenny Deason. I have a, a question that I think oftentimes comes across as antagonistic 
um, but do feel like it's an important academic question for all of us. And it, and it has to do, if I could do a real short story for my question, Deep Deuce in Oklahoma City was once a thriving black community in Oklahoma City, a cultural vibrancy, um, arts, jazz, culinary, food, it's gone. We'll never get it back. Mm-hmm. Since. So I'm, the antagonistic part would be using the G word, the gentrification. And in um, Oklahoma City's position with a lot of potential development, what do you guys feel like are some of the healthiest mechanisms that we can put in place to protect cultural and ethnic integrity as we do? I think it's awesome. Like this neighborhood, I think, has been a, a pretty good example of keeping uh, some cultural diversity in the surrounding neighborhoods and affordable housing around the neighborhoods. We have minority owned businesses in this district. And I don't know if there's been any specific policy other than uh, somehow it's stayed affordable to, to be here um, in this district. Um, so I think, I think we do maybe have some work to do on creating policies that specifically try to protect some of that. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's a really good question. I think anytime you make
We've got one last question. Go ahead. Paul, and I will kind of close it out with an Oklahoma City specific question. We're nearing the end of both uh, MAPS 3 and our latest general obligation bond issue program, which is both around $800 million. Would you keep financing infrastructure the same way? And if so, what would you fund? And if not, how would you change it for the future of Oklahoma City? I would, I would love to see um, focused, small infrastructure projects that, that kind of break up the 600 square miles of our city and say, what are the areas we can sort of make a difference in with a certain type of projects? Focus on one square mile as like a neighborhood that, that becomes a walkable, uh, a walkable district instead of uh, trying to, you know, focus on Four, four linear miles of a, of a main arterial road focus on just that one intersection that could be a great village center for, for four suburban neighborhoods or something. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I don't disagree with that. I think that, you know, when we talk about something that's like maps, maps is a project. Maps is a program that is So in order to do capital projects, you have to do seminaries that you're going to place in the project, in the project. It doesn't mean that they can't do these. But looking at where those capital opportunities are, where the sustainable opportunities are, if there's some sort of mechanism, I think it's going to be very important. I don't think it all has to be that long term. But I think there has to be a place for If we build it, we will right now. We have capacity to go in But I do believe we need to work on building that capacity so we can invest at the project. I feel like there's a there's a solid merger between those last two questions, really. Because, you know, in a, in a world where we're trying to fill huge vacancies and we bring in, you know, large dollar amounts and plot things down, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of success, but you reach like a point of diminishing returns with that. And there has to be a way to invest in small increments so that we can get the small restaurant that opens up, so we can get the neighborhood to be more walkable, so we can start to have a backbone where a transit system can become a viable thing to help make that neighborhood a little bit better place to be. And I, I think the challenge we face as governments here around the country is adapting the really the 20th century financing mechanisms that we become accustomed to as they uh, you know become less and less effective, adapting those to be better for our, our neighborhood development and better for our cities today. That's like the, the, the huge challenge we all face. So I, I thought those were, the, those were fantastic questions. I have like one last thing I want to ask, and then we'll be done. Um, which is more fearsome in your mind, a timber wolf or thunder? Because I, I, I realize it's pretty obvious. Okay, it's pretty obvious to you. Have you ever seen a timber wolf? Or is the, you know... I don't know. How many square miles can you hear a timber wolf? Oh, that's true. <laughs>
we we have uh, I'm I'm very happy for you all because we have I, I do enjoy the NBA. Um, we got our basketball team in 1991, I want to say, and we have been horrible with you know the exception of like one brief moment. Uh, we have been we have been like the abysmal franchise for a long time. So no, 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 that's that was Vancouver, and then they moved to Memphis. We were an expansion team in '91. We were uh, we were always the Minnesota Timberwolves. But a Timberwolf. Okay, I'll tell you. I actually I actually came across a Timberwolf in the wild. It scared the bejeep. These things. These are fearsome. They're tall. Oh my gosh! Like this tall? Yeah. yeah it's it's it, They're it, like yeah. yeah. These are huge, I have not, but that would freak me out too. Yeah. Okay, so I relent. Thunder is more fearsome, at least during this season. Good luck to all of you. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a cool audience. Thank you to Shane. Thank you to Jane. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast, and keep doing what you can to build strong Stick We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.